I invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to the 37th chapter of Genesis, to Genesis 37, where we continue to make our way along through this marvelous book of Scripture. We uh, come to another transition this week. I know that I said that to you last week, and it was uh, true then as well. Last week we came to what in Hebrew we call the Toledot of Esau. You remember that we translate that word generations. So last week it was the generations of Esau. This week we come to the Toledot or generations of Jacob, which uh, to our ears may seem a bit strange because what we're about to read does not focus on Jacob. Uh, neither did last week's text focus on Esau per se, but rather on his descendants. And that's the way Genesis is written and outlined and uh, at any rate, we are alerted early in the text to a significant division here then being made with, to which we should pay close attention. This will be, by the way, the last of the major divisions in the book of Genesis. It's part of Genesis that focuses largely on the life of Joseph, but uh, also has an eye for Judah as well. For Judah, from whom, of course, down the line of many generations, Jesus Christ himself, the Messiah, will come. So to Genesis 37, but first to prayer. Our Father, as we come to the generations of Jacob, we ask that you will also be here with us, that your word, which you inspired, this word that was written so many thousands of years ago, but preserved for this very day, this inspired word of God will also be illumined to us now as we read. Speak to us, we pray, and conform our lives to your truth, we ask. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis 37, beginning at verse 1. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us, or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, 
his father rebuked him and said, what is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in mind. Now, there are many different levels on which to read and to preach a passage such as this one. As I say that to you, I'm mindful of a phone call that I received here at the church several months ago. A man from the Chicagoland area was considering moving to the area and he was looking for a, a faithful reformed church. And so he asked me about our congregation and what it was like. He asked me some theological questions and, and then back to worship and what worship was like and what was the order of worship and what sort of music did we sing and so on. And then he asked me whether I preach redemptive historical sermons or not. First, the question sort of surprised me a little bit. It's not exactly the most common question that people ask when looking for a church, investigating a church, whether the preacher preaches redemptive historical sermons. That uh, term, redemptive historical, is a specific term, a technical term, and is usually used in academic settings. It refers to a school of thought that has been a championed especially in Dutch Reformed uh, circles, such as uh, the ones among whom I grew up. It, uh, it refers to a school of thought, uh, for instance, in which Debbie and I were both taught in college specifically to read the scripture with a particularly redemptive historical hermeneutic or approach to interpretation. In the redemptive historic approach, there are certain things to avoid and there are other things uh, to look for in a text, especially when preaching on a given portion of scripture. On the one hand, redemptive historic preachers should avoid what is called exemplarism. Now exemplarism basically means that the character in the text is an exemplar of some virtue and we should imitate him or her. In other words, great care should be taken not to say simply be like David or have a sermon about being like Daniel. I'm often wondered what the sturdy, redemptive, historic men would say about that song, uh, Dare to be a Daniel. But uh, I think even as I ask the question, uh, I also answer it. Another word for the kind of interpretation of the Bible that they say should be avoided is moralism. That is simply drawing morals from the biblical text by which we should live. The problem with that in their eyes is that the Bible then becomes a book mainly about us, about our lives, how we ought to live, and that only. Now, on the other hand, if exemplarism or moralism is the thing to be avoided by the redemptive historic approach, then what is to be pursued in every text is, and in every sermon is Christ. Some picture of Christ, something related to Christ, some pathway to Christ, some type of Christ that is a picture of Christ. And that, of course, is a definite strength 
to the redemptive historic a method of interpretation. The Bible is read from a theocentric or Christocentric point of view. That is, God at the center and, and Christ in particular found everywhere in the Bible. Now applied to, to preaching, that school of thought puts it this way, that Jesus Christ must be at the heart of every sermon. Every text leads to Christ is another way to say it. Now what the redemptive historic method has done has been to correct some great errors in the church, to be certain, and to bring God and his Christ more to the center of our thinking and of our reading of the scripture. And that's a good thing. We must never reduce the scripture to a book of virtues or, or to a, a, a book of moral stories. Of course not. What we have in the history of scripture is the record of the unfolding of the redemption of God through history, hence the name redemptive historical. So what's been accomplished by the emphases of this hermeneutic is terribly important. In fact, it seems to me that every preacher should begin his study by asking how the text before him fits into God's larger redemptive plan, how God is revealed, and even more specifically, how Christ is revealed in it. So now were I to follow through on that point of view this morning, a very legitimate and important one, as I've said, I might preach to you this morning about how Joseph is a picture of Christ. And I don't doubt that he is. I might go on to preach to you about how Jesus, like Joseph, was rejected by his own brothers, about the parallels between Joseph's sufferings and Jesus' sufferings, about how redemption is accomplished through suffering, and so on. I could preach to you a very Christocentric sermon. And in fact, I anticipate that in a day uh, to come, a Lord's day to come, the Lord willing, we will hear such a sermon. Now, I suspect that that's the very sort of thing that the man who called me this week, or several months ago, is looking for week after week in the preaching. And I further suspect that to him, any other type of sermon would be considered less than faithful to the text. Or I could preach to you a very theocentric sermon, a God-centered sermon. In fact, I anticipate that, that we will come to that very soon, looking at the hand of God at work in Joseph's life through these most bitter and terrible afflictions that he will face and how God is working all of that for good and for the good of Joseph's people. And indeed, these chapters 37 through 50 in Genesis are considered a locus classicus of divine providence in the Bible. This whole account of Joseph's life and trials will end with that famous line that uh, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. And I wouldn't be surprised if, uh, if such a thing is possible, that by the time we finish our way through the rest of the book of Genesis, you may grow weary if that is possible of hearing about the sovereign providence of God, his ruling over all things for good and for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. 
But there is more to this text of Scripture. If we take the redemptive historic method and apply it too narrowly, I fear we will miss out on much of what the Bible has to say and to teach to us if we apply this approach too narrowly and too strictly. The Bible is a rich book and deep. There are many layers of teaching in the scripture. And if we are constantly fearful as we read the scripture of of drawing moral lessons from the Bible, along with the self-revelation of God and of his Christ and redemption, then I fear we'll also miss much of what God has to teach us about living our lives every day in obedience to him. Practical lessons woven into the historical texts about temptation, about love, about the struggles we face, and so on. Fact is, as the scholars say, scriptural history, the historical record of scripture is a thick history. It has many layers. And as such, it reveals to us and teaches us several things all at the very same time. That's why, in part, you can read through your Bible year after year after year and come to the same text over and over and over and find from it new lessons and new applications virtually every time. Now take the passage before us. As I say, we may find here a picture of Christ and Joseph, and many commentators do. A.W. Pink, for instance, spends an entire chapter at this point developing the parallels between Joseph and Jesus. Another book I have on the shelf spends more than 20 pages here developing the idea of Joseph as a type or a picture of Christ. But there are other lessons for us here, too. And the one to which I will draw your attention this morning is this, the bitterness of envy, of jealousy, the bitterness of envy, and bitter it is indeed. Three times in these nine verses we read that Joseph's brothers hated him. It is as though their hatred escalates. Verse 4, they hated him. Verse 5, they hated him even more. Verse 8, they hated him even more. But then behind the hatred, verse 11, his brothers were jealous. Now at first, of course, we might sympathize a little bit with Joseph's brothers. After all, To begin with, Joseph was clearly the favorite of their father. Verse 3, now Israel loved Joseph more than his other sons because he was the son of his old age. They already knew that. Jacob had made no pretense about Rachel being his favorite wife and then upon her death transferring that favoritism to Rachel's children. He loved Joseph and Benjamin, but especially Joseph, more than the sons of Leah, more than the sons of Bilhah, more than the sons of Zilpah. And in a move almost calculated to stir up the jealousy of Joseph's half-brothers, Jacob puts on his favored son a robe that sets him apart from the other brothers. 
We don't know exactly what the nature of that robe was. We translate it traditionally robe of many colors, but it's not that easily translated. It could also mean simply a long robe with sleeves or an adorned robe. But at any rate, whatever it was, it sets him apart and it provokes his brothers. Some have suggested that it, it sent a message that he was maybe even somehow in charge of his brothers. Sort of the shirt and tie of the new college graduate management making their way among the older laborers on the line. That uh, might be a conjecture uh, and nothing more, but at any rate, the tensions between the brothers was somewhat similar to such a situation. In verse 2, this 17-year-old upstart brings a bad report about his brothers to their father and his. And no doubt, Jacob is totally inclined to receive it, which burns up his brothers all the more. They could see the preferential treatment, and as a result, they hated him so badly and so intensely that they couldn't even have a peaceful word with him. Now, he's thrown into the mix these dreams of Joseph and Joseph's own brashly adolescent willingness to sort of blurt them out to his family. One of the sheaves bowing, or all of their sheaves bowing to his, and then the sun and the moon and 11 stars bowing to him, none of which required any interpretation for those brothers and for that family to understand. And envy and jealousy naturally rise up in their hearts. It was an intense jealousy, according to the Hebrew word. It was a passion deeper and stronger even than their hate. It is an ominous portent of what is to come. And what we know from our perspective did come by way of treatment from his brothers. They were eaten up by envy, by jealousy of their brother. They were blinded by their envy. They couldn't see straight for the envy that filled their eyes when they looked upon his brother, their brother under, under the gloating gaze of their father. It was the fruit, really. It was the fruit of a long family line of favoritism. Isaac loved Jacob better than he did. Uh, Isaac loved Esau, rather, better than he loved Jacob. Rebekah played favorites with Jacob. Jacob played favorites with his wife, now dead, and with her son. And it is a scenario repeated an untold number of times among families still today. Parents who should know better, preferring one child to another in more or less obvious ways, playing one child against one another, holding one in obvious esteem while neglecting another, and the results are always disastrous. Envy and jealousy rears its ugly head and wreaks havoc. But jealousy and envy also shows up in larger families, in church families. Christians, alas, have a long history of envy and strife. 
In Corinth, it was the envy of others' gifts that contributed to splits and divisions in the church. The Galatians apparently suffered from envy between her members, especially after the Judaizers came and introduced their works salvation doctrines that taught that salvation was by Christ and by works, by a righteousness that is parceled out to them through works instead of the Bible's own doctrine, as we've heard even this morning in the assurance of pardon of Christ's righteousness imputed to us, placed on the sinner's account to make him right with God. And before that, Aaron and Miriam, you remember, acted out of envy and jealousy against Moses, whom God had chosen to lead the people. They thought that they should have some of the glory too. And of course, you all remember Saul as out of bitter envy and eaten up with envy, pursues David through the wilderness to kill him because God had chosen him instead of Saul's family to take the throne in Israel. And then, of course, you will remember that it was envy that drove the chief priests to deliver Jesus up to die. It is embarrassing, really. It is embarrassing how envy and jealousy has marked and marred the church. Yes, even the church. And it is shameful. Even more recently, we can find easily examples of envy and jealousy throwing its wrench into the spokes of the church. Even at times of great spiritual advancement, perhaps especially at those times, the evil seed of envy and jealousy has set even ministers against each other, inflicting great damage in the process, in the process of the gospel itself. Even when the debates are, have been of substantial and important consequences, such as the struggle between Calvinism and Arminianism during the Great Awakening, you, you needn't dig very deep, or during the Second Great Awakening, you needn't dig very deep before you find that the motives behind the debate far too often, when you boil them all down, come to jealousy and envy. From the days of the Great Awakenings even, you find good men falling so low that they would rather that souls not be saved than that credit should go to that man who holds those views. A window on our sinfulness and how, as, as, as Alexander White puts it, self is just another word for sin. Officers of the church have been known sometimes for bitter jealousy of each other's gifts and graces and even popularity with the people of the church. And the welfare of the church suffers while they first stew over and then act upon their envy. It is the special sin of ministers, Robert Murray McShane pointed out. We might give it a more positive example. We can remember how bravely the battle against this sin was fought by Thomas Shepard, the New England Puritan, author of 
great works of the Christian life and first president of Harvard was once found late one night in his, uh, late in his life, fainted and lying on his face in his study with a copy of the New England Gazette in his clenched fist. Shepard Henna, a friend you see who is a preacher, and it was no secret that his friend's sermons were much preferred by almost everyone uh, against those of Shepard. Shepard was a man of uh, whom we would expect to uh, find his sermons published, printed in the newspaper because of his position, because of his station in life, but people really didn't want to read Shepard's sermons near so much as they wanted to read his friend's sermons. And in that particular issue of that newspaper, there was a particularly fine and beautiful sermon preached by his friend. You see, Shepherd's temptation to envy was so strong and therefore the war against that passion so brutal and violent that it took everything out of him, even his conscience, consciousness there in his study. And another point in his life, Shepherd wrote in his diary, quote, kept a private fast for the destruction of my pride, unquote. And of course, pride is but the sister sin. No, in fact, it is the other face of the same sin, envy. And there's the bitterness of envy. Here it is. It is frutal, uh, futile. The brothers were brutally envious of Joseph. And it was so futile. It even drove them to plot his death and then to abandon him and finally to sell him as merchandise to passing traders. But it was also futile. You know how the story goes. You know how the story ends, most of you. After being sold by his own brothers, Joseph ends up in Egypt where in the long run he becomes the sort of grand vizier, the prime minister of the land. And then sure as the dreams that God had given him in his youth, his very family comes, bows the knee to him, and pleads his help, the very one that they so deeply hated. It was God, you see. It was God who had given those dreams to Joseph. God who had put Joseph in authority in Egypt. God who orchestrated all of these events. So you see, by their envy, by their jealousness, by their jealousy, they were really rebelling against God. They were hating God's decrees. They understood the significance of those dreams and they thought to undo what God had revealed. No way we're going to bow down to that brat by getting rid of him. And that's also the bitterness of envy. Brothers and sisters, when you envy someone else, when you are jealous of someone else, it is ultimately rebellion against God. It is shaking your fist in the face of God. It is unwillingness to acknowledge that what others have, their gifts, their graces, their popularity, their belongings, their, 
monies, their position in the church, his lovely wife, her impressive husband, their beautiful children, everything that belongs to your neighbor or to your brother or sister in Christ has been given them by God. It is God's doing. And everything you've been given is from the same hand. As Paul put it, you have nothing but what you have received from God. Donald Gray Barnhouse years ago put it this way. He's, he wrote, how unfortunate that many are not willing to take the place which God has assigned them in this world. When a man is covetous and envious, he is saying, God, I am not satisfied. You didn't give me what I want. Such a man would dethrone God. He would redeal the events and the possessions of life so that he would be exalted. Brothers and sisters in the Lord, I don't know what you're envious of today, what your brother or sister in the Lord or your neighbor has that you do not. Perhaps it's nothing more than recognition or, or, or praise that you think, because he has it, makes you look smaller by comparison. Whatever it is, your envy is futile, for it is nothing more than rebellion. Rebellion against the Lord, who, as someone has said, deals every hand, good or bad, and then requires us all to play by the same rules. So I say to you, in God's name, heed the warning of Joseph's brothers. Stop rebelling by your envy and by your jealousy against the sovereign decrees of God. You can do nothing to change them anyway. And then learn to say instead with the psalmist, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. Amen.